Good morning and welcome to our adult Bible class. This new series is called The Rise and Falls of Joseph. We are talking about three different stages in his life. You could use these terms to describe him at different points in his journey. He was a dreamer, he was a prisoner, and he was a ruler. We're looking not just at what Joseph does in his life or what happens to Joseph in his life. We are looking at what God shows about himself and who he is through the story of Joseph. Now, I just want to do a little bit of an overview on last week when we began this series. We talked about how Joseph experiences multiple risings and fallings. We talked about how in whatever house he's in, whether that's the house of his father or the house of Potiphar or the house of Pharaoh, he seems to rise. He seems to prosper in some way at some point, but he also experiences falls. And some of those falls are due to foolishness. Now, this isn't like, we're not saying that Joseph uh, had some outright sin or some obvious failing or some uh, incredibly wicked action. We're not blaming him necessarily for his decision as if it was evil or malicious in intent. We're saying that Joseph wasn't playing his cards well. He wasn't being smart. He didn't have wisdom. He wasn't being farsighted. He was being short-sighted. He was being naive. That often led to his falls. And we see that his story uh, is not necessarily about a transformation from a sinner to a saint, but a fool to a sage. He becomes wise through the experiences of his life. Uh, when people look at his story, sometimes we can think that his story might mean that in all of our actions and all of our situations in life, we will at some point experience prosperity like him. But the story of Joseph does not affirm the prosperity gospel one bit. We do not believe in the health and wealth gospel. We reject it. In fact, Joseph's story shows just how much suffering you can experience in this life. God never, ever promises full and complete protection. Even at the end of Joseph's life, when he is most prosperous, he knows that that can fall apart. He continues to be wise and strategic. He continues to make uh, smart choices and far-sighted choices because he always is playing the long game. He knows that our status in life is not protected. Uh, we can always fall again, sometimes not due to any mistakes on our end, just because of uh, factors in life that are outside of our control. If anything, his story guarantees that we will go through times of great suffering, but God's providence is always reliable. We can always trust God to guide us, even in the midst of great suffering. Now, we talked about chapter 37 last week. This is kind of the famous story that people know the most, where Joseph uh, gets the ornate robe from his father. He's clearly the favorite in the family. He brings back a bad report on his brothers to his dad, which 
doesn't help the relationship with his brothers at all. And on top of all of that, he tells them about his dreams. He tells them that he's uh, going to rule over them. And in a society where being the firstborn is the most important thing in the world, his 10 older brothers do not appreciate it. And over the years, you can tell that they've become bitter towards him. And we could all relate uh, to them, but what they end up doing with their bitterness is selling Joseph into slavery. And that's where we end in chapter 37, and now we're in chapter 38. Now, once you read this chapter, it can seem to like totally out of the blue. Like, why are we hearing this story of chapter 38? It's not about Joseph, or at least it doesn't seem to be about Joseph. Outside of context, the story pulled out of the chapters surrounding it can seem so random, so out of left field, you might wonder why in the world we know this story. But God is telling the story of chapter 38 to show side by side two stories of two brothers, a story about Judah and a story about Joseph. This is how the story begins. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to another son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Now, we already have some warning signs in this story that, that tell you that this story is going to go south. It's not going to go well for Judah. And the first warning sign is that he's marrying a Canaanite woman. His uh, ancestor, his, uh, yeah, his ancestor, Cain, uh, uh, excuse me, Esau, did the exact same thing when his life was blowing up. So if if we see that Judah is marrying a Gentile woman who worshipped pagan gods, this is a this is a clue to anyone reading the Old Testament. Things may not go well. This is a warning sign. Things could go south. So we uh, kind of have this expectation: what's going to go wrong in this story? Now, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We don't know what the wickedness was. All we know is that the Lord punishes him. Then in verse 8, Judah says to Onan, his, his second son, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, this idea, this story, the premise upon which this story is told is very strange to us, but it actually served an important function at this time. When a wife became a widow, when she lost her husband, she could end up destitute without any means to provide for herself 
or for her, for her children. If you just look ahead and read the story of Ruth to see how desperate her situation was, you can get it. Widows did not have a way to provide for themselves. If they didn't have family, if they didn't have someone to surround them and support them, if they didn't have a husband, they could end up on the streets and destitute. Now, there was a custom at the time that a brother was obligated to sleep with his brother's wife if, uh, if the brother died. And this was, again, very strange to us, but the purpose of it was so that the sister-in-law could have a child, could have a husband, and could continue uh, having a line of descendants. This was a way for a brother-in-law to provide for a sister-in-law. Again, so bizarre to us, unfathomable to us, but this was important for the widow's livelihood. This was to provide for her, to make sure she had a husband, to make sure she had children, to make sure that her line continued. So when Onan fails to do this, when he knows that this son was, as he said, would not be his, he decides to go against this custom. And this was an absolute disgrace to the recently widowed woman whose husband died earlier than expected. Onan refuses to do this, and God punishes him. Now, just as a side note, despite how bizarre we, we think this story is, Tamar herself the widow wants this because it means security for her. As long as she is unmarried, as long as she is widowed, she is staring down the barrel of destitution. She is worried about the security and protection she may or may not have. She wants this to happen. This means security for her. So when Onan fails to do this, when he fails to fulfill this custom, he is punished by God. Now, in the coming scenes, we see Judah take a turn for the worse. Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, this is, remember, a recently widowed woman, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up. For Judah thought, well, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Now, before I go on to the other verses, what you need to see here is that Judah is making a false promise. He's telling Tamar, go back to your father's household, go under his protection, and when my youngest third son uh, becomes of age, then he will be the one who will fulfill this custom and he will provide for you. But that's an empty promise. Judah is already thinking, well, this, this Tamar girl, this Tamar woman must be cursed because my firstborn son died and my secondborn son died and my thirdborn son might die. He has a view that this might be Tamar's fault. If my third son marries her, then he might die as well. It has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with their wickedness. It's Tamar's wickedness. And so he makes an empty promise to her. Now, separately, this is, this is years later, maybe months later, after this uh, empty promise to Tamar, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shulah, dies. Now, Judah grieves. He grieves for a period of time. Again, we're seeing that Judah is becoming a widower. But when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, 
to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. Now, we see that Judah cares about losing his spouse, but he doesn't seem to have a ton of sympathy for Tamar, who lost hers. And he goes up to Timnah to do something other than mourn the loss of his wife. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She knows what he's going up there for. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. She sees that this empty promise was in fact empty. Judah had no intentions of marrying Sheila to Tamar. Verse 15 says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. We see what Judah is going up to Timnah for. This is not a part of his grieving process. This is a part of his selfish behavior. Verse 16, we find out that he does not realize that this woman he sees was his daughter-in-law. So he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Clearly, Tamar is setting a trap. She says to Judah, what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. In verse 17, I will send you a young goat from my flock. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? You see, again, he's making promises about the future to Tamar that he's not going to fulfill. So she says, what will you give me now as a pledge? And he says, well, what pledge should I give you? And she says, your seal, its cord, and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her. Clearly, he really wants to sleep with her. And she becomes pregnant by him. After Tamar leaves, she takes off her veil and puts on her widow's clothes again. Now, one way of thinking about these items is this is like his ID and his credit cards. It's obvious that they belong to him. She wants an identification for the man she slept with. She changes clothes to trick Judah. Now, think about this. In the last chapter, Judah ripped off the clothes from Joseph covered them in blood, presented them to Jacob in order to deceive his own father that Joseph was dead, not sold into slavery. But now Tamar has used clothes to trick Judah. What he did to his father is now coming back on him through his daughter-in-law. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Now, again, this is kind of worrisome to Judah. He has slept with someone. He's given her his ID. He's given her his credit cards. He's given all this identification to show that it was him who slept with her. 
But he says, okay, as long as it's a secret, we won't become a laughingstock. He doesn't want to be ashamed of his behavior. But three months later, when a woman might start showing that she's pregnant, Judah is told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. In self-righteous indignation, Judah says, have my daughter-in-law burned to death. And she says, oh, by the way, the person who got me pregnant is, owns these. And Judah is absolutely trapped. She was owed by the customs of the day a man from Judah's tribe to sleep with her, to become her husband, to give her offspring, to continue her line, to make sure that she, Tamar, is secure, and she got Judah himself to perform the obligation. He was falsely promising that he would give his own son to her. He lies about that, and so she receives what was due to her so that she would not be destitute. We may disapprove of Tamar's actions in general. We may disapprove of her behavior in general, but we can't fault her pursuit of justice. She was wanting what was due to her. She was wanting security that her father-in-law should have provided. We can't fault her for that, which is exactly why Judah says this. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give to her my son. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb just like the two boys that Judah lost, Ur and Onan. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. Again, an obsession with the firstborn. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out instead, and she said, this is the midwife, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Now, again, we have another switcheroo happen. The younger supplants the older. Isaac did it to Ishmael, Jacob did it to Esau, and now Perez does it to Zerah. These are the, not the last times we'll hear these names, because in the book of Ruth, the last chapter has a genealogy of David's ancestor. And this boy, Perez, becomes the great, 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 great granddad of King David. This is where King David's story begins. Now, I'd love to explore those connections some more. But we need to see why this story is plopped right into the middle of Joseph's story. Because the next chapter goes back to Joseph, and it just so happens to be another sex scandal. In verse 1, we see that Joseph is taken down to Egypt. 
Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Remember, Joseph's brothers see the Ishmaelites or the Midianites, there were synonymous terms at the time, going down to Egypt in a caravan. They sell him to the Ishmaelites, and now the Ishmaelites sell him to Potiphar. The Lord, the Lord in the midst of all of this is with Joseph so that even in Potiphar's house, he prospers. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. See, this is the story of Joseph. The rise and fall, rise and fall. He rose to the top of his father's household despite the the fact that he's the 11th born son, he was clearly the favorite. He was receiving dreams that he would rule over his brothers, even though he's younger than them. He's supplanting them, ruling over them. And then he falls. He foolishly tells these dreams to his brothers. They sell him into slavery, but the Lord does not abandon him. The Lord is with him. He prospers. Potiphar notices that and says, I want that guy in charge. I want him at the top of my household. I want him taking care of business. He's good at what he does. And so Potiphar puts him in charge of the whole house. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. But even though the Lord blesses the household of the Egyptian Potiphar because of Joseph, even though the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potter had, both in the house and in the field, Potter, Potter, even though Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, Joseph experiences a temptation. Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. And she says, come to bed with me. But he refuses Joseph says, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because, Joseph reminds her, you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? But here's the thing, that one refusal doesn't do much. Day after day after day after day, she spoke to Joseph. She kept trying and failing to seduce him. He refuses to go to bed with her or even be in the same room as her. Now, she doesn't really enjoy these refusals. So one day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his tasks, and none of the household servants were inside. There are not two or three witnesses to this. Potiphar's wife caught Joseph by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, now, here's the interesting thing about this. Uh, I don't know what she tells them to look at because they were not witnesses to anything, but she is the master's wife. 
So she tells them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Now, this story ends with um, another fall of Joseph. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this false story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, when we tell that story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife, we often focus on the temptation. The fact that he's entrusted with all of this power, his master's wife clearly wants to sleep with him, is trying to seduce him, and it does not work. He constantly refuses, constantly reminds her, hey, we're not married, you're married to my master's wife, I've been entrusted with all of this responsibility, and you doing this uh, puts me in a really bad position. And I would be betraying Potiphar's trust if I did this. This would be sinning against God. I mean, he gives her a list of reasons why these are bad ideas. And uh, he continues every single day to uh, resist her temptations. And we focus on that. And that shows us something good about Joseph. But what I can't help but notice is that this seems foolish. He is put in a bad situation over and over and over again. And he doesn't have power. Now, obviously, he's doing the right thing. He's being faithful to God. He is uh, honoring the trust that Potiphar has with him. He's maintaining sexual purity. All of those things are good things, but he isn't very farsighted. He doesn't realize that this road is going to continue, and he doesn't figure out a way to get out from underneath it. Maybe he thinks this will go away. Maybe he thinks this temptation will subside, but it doesn't. And in the end, he gets put in a very bad situation, and then he has no appeal. He goes into the house. He's alone with Potiphar's wife, and there's no way that that's going to end up well for him. Again, I think that this is demonstrative of Joseph's faithfulness, of his good character, of him making the right call, but being naive, thinking that maybe this will just go away. When in reality, this person has power over him. There's no way it's going to go away. It's not going to go well for Joseph. Again, he falls. He rose in the house of Potiphar, but he fell. We see the cycle continue for Joseph. But here's the beauty of these two stories back to back in chapters 38 and 39. Now we're seeing not just Joseph's righteousness, but that contrasted with Judah's unrighteousness. 
We're told in chapter 38 that Judah leaves his brother and his brothers and goes up to Timnah to sleep with a prostitute who is actually his daughter-in-law. And in chapter 39, Joseph leaves his brothers, is sold into slavery, goes down to Egypt, but refuses to sleep with his master's wife who is trying to seduce him. Potiphar's wife and Tamar are both Gentiles. They are both non-Jews. Potiphar's wife attempts adultery with Joseph and then uses her power to betray him and specifically calls out his ethnic status as a Hebrew in order to trap him, to pit prejudice against him, and to make sure that Potiphar punishes him. In the story right before that, Tamar is a Gentile woman who is betrayed by a Hebrew man who is Judah and then seduces him successfully against his own selfish uh, character so as to trap him in his own error. Do you see all of those reversals and uh, paradoxes happening in these two chapters in chapter 38 and chapter 39? Joseph is more righteous than Potiphar's wife, but Tamar is more righteous than Judah. We're seeing not just the fall from grace that Joseph is experiencing. We're not just seeing how he is being punished unjustly. We are seeing the downfall of Judah. We're seeing his own moral failure. We're seeing that one of Jacob's sons is doing a lot better than the other sons of Jacob. Because if you remember, Leah, the unfavored wife of Jacob, had six sons. The first four are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And in the buildup before Joseph's stories, we actually see all four of these sons fail in one way or the other. Reuben ends up sleeping with uh, Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. He also fails to protect Joseph from being sold into slavery. So Reuben, even though he's the firstborn, has these moral failings. He has these, uh, these kind of tests that he does not pass. Simeon and Levi uh, do something uh, similar similarly immoral in chapter 34. They uh, have this battle against the Shechemites to get revenge against them. And Jacob says to his son, Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble upon me. So if you think about these first four sons of Jacob and Leah, they all have these moral failings. Reuben fails, Simeon fails, Levi fails, and now we see Judah's failure, whereas the firstborn son of Rachel is succeeding and prospering and continuing to be faithful to God, and the Lord is with him. The older sons are supplanted by the younger son. We see that Joseph, even though he is falling from his position, he is rising in his righteousness. He may be punished unjustly, while being innocent, but Judah goes, is, is guilty of his crimes and faces the consequences. Joseph is being held up as a righteous man who suffers unjustly. Now, is it surprising then that God would choose Joseph to rule over 
these failing older brothers? Is it surprising that God would pick this brother of all of the brothers to end up down in Egypt when he does? Is it shocking that God would say, that's the brother that I want in the right place in the right time? Now, even in the midst of this suffering, the Lord blesses Joseph. We see at the end of chapter 39, even when Joseph goes into prison, we find out that the Lord is with him again. Even wrongly put into prison, we're told that the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord shows him kindness, grants him favor, even in the eyes of the prison warden. The warden puts Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden pays no attention to what's going on if it's under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Whenever Joseph is in a house, he is put in management. He's always put in positions of authority. He's also he's always put in given responsibility over tasks such that the true master, whether it was Jacob or Potiphar or now the warden, they don't even have to worry about it because you know who's in charge? Joseph is. Now, how is that setting Joseph up when he is eventually put in charge of all Egypt? Pharaoh doesn't have to worry one second about this upcoming famine in the future because he knows Joseph is in charge. Because no matter how much Joseph suffers, and no matter how much Joseph suffers in, uh, for, for crimes he never committed, no matter how much he suffers as an innocent man, he is put in positions of authority, he is given management responsibility. He is put in charge. And when he's put in charge, things go well. Now, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless you. We often make a connection between that promise and ultimately Christ's coming. And that's true. God blesses all of the world through Abraham's descendant, who is Jesus Christ. But God is already fulfilling that promise in the book of Genesis. He is already blessing those who bless the family of Abraham. When, when uh, Potiphar blesses Joseph and puts him in charge, he is blessed in return. When Joseph is in the, house, in the house of the prison, if you want to put it that way, when he is put in charge, the warden is blessed because he blesses Joseph. God is blessing those who bless the descendants of Abraham already in the book of Genesis. God is already fulfilling promises he's made. Now, there is a connection I want to make before we go on to upcoming chapters. We need to keep track of Joseph's clothes. I know this is a strange detail, but I think it brings this story all together. When Joseph 
was a young kid, just 17 years old. His father gives him an ornate robe. This shows how he's the favorite. His brothers look at that robe, and it makes them mad every single time they see it. And so right before they sell him into slavery, they strip him of that robe. They throw him into an empty cistern, and at first they plan to just let him sit there till he dies. But then they sell him into slavery, naked and alone, separated from his father and his brothers. But now he's given new clothes. He's put in, in, in charge over Potiphar's household. And right in that moment of great faithfulness to God, being responsible with the trust he's been given by Potiphar, he is stripped of his clothes again. And this time we see he hasn't sinned. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's totally and utterly mistreated. He's the recipient of false allegations. And we see that again, for the second time, Joseph is naked and alone, stripped of his clothes, dishonored and ashamed and humiliated. And we know that's not right. Joseph did nothing wrong with Potiphar's wife, and yet God let this happen to him. God let him suffer. God let him be naked and ashamed and humiliated. But we'll see in chapters to come that Joseph receives new clothes. And as we see him receive new clothes, we'll see what God is doing, even in these chapters where he is stripped of his clothes, naked and ashamed.